Welcome to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there is anything in this message that you would like to talk about further, please go to our website, www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org. Well, last week I announced that I was uh, going to start a new series today, and I talked, uh, the, the title of the series was Why? I wanted to look at some questions that some of us might have about faith, about the Bible, about life, and uh, I don't know if you in here, if you've had any questions ever. Anyone in here ever had questions? No? Wow, the rest of you can fly around the room on your way out the door, that'd be awesome. I've had questions. I've had doubts. In, in some moments, and okay, I'm sorry if you're going to walk out of the church after your pastor's been transparent this morning. Some moments, I go, what if this is all just made up? What if I have been brainwashed like the world would want to tell me I have been? What if this whole God thing is just a crutch that doesn't really exist? And then I get up and preach and I believe. <laughs> I reckon it's okay to have questions. I reckon it's okay to have some doubts. I hope that if it's okay for you, it's okay for me as well, right? Nah. <laughs> Pastors go held to a different standard than the rest of us? Okay. Cool. As long as it's God's standard and we're all holding each other to that, then we're okay. I, I, I hope you've got questions. I hope you've got some doubts. Because I think there's a problem that can happen if we don't question the things that we hear. If we don't begin to investigate some things for ourselves, if we just accept everything that is said, I reckon we might have some issues at some point. Why do you believe what you believe? Well, for those that have grown up in church, perhaps it's the things that your parents taught you or the things that your pastor taught you as if you've been in church for a really long time. Perhaps it's what you heard at youth group. Maybe it was the ultimate authority on all things, TV. All of us have beliefs and practices that are shaped by others. If you grew up in church, in a different church to this one perhaps, there'd be a whole bunch of different theological and practice things that you might believe or have experienced that are quite different to here. There's a a, a difference between how Catholics, Anglicans, Baptists and the Pentecostal world interpret some scriptures and there's definitely a difference in the way they emphasise some things. Throughout history there's been some legitimate questions that get asked and often it leads to profound belief change. Do you know that there's a group of people, most of them are millennials, around the world at the moment that love God, love Jesus, but question just about everything else. That if they were to sit down and have a conversation with you, 
your view of Scripture and who Jesus and God is might be completely, incredibly different to theirs. We live in a world that is questioning everything that many of you have taken for granted, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I love it when someone questions enough to go and read a book or look up a website or have a conversation with someone because they're prepared to begin journeying these questions in their life. You know, the Apostle Paul stated which what is probably the first creed or statement of, of doctrine to help others around him know exactly what he believed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 6, he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Paul is being really clear about what he believes. The reason someone like Paul would do that, and we have it in our, in our scriptures and the letters he's written, is because there were a whole lot of other beliefs that had started creeping into the Christian world. We, we today have a really sometimes distorted view of what Christianity would have been like back in the day, just after Jesus, right? Because we're in a completely different Context, And it's really hard for us to actually imagine what it would have been like when we get to come to a church like this and we get to open a Bible and we get to sing songs like this full of theology and, and concepts that, that help us understand who God is. We, we get to be taught by people who have spent years studying the Bible and we've got all these resources available for us just to flick a page and, and, and get some insight. So the Christian church began to explode started at Pentecost, thousands added to their number. And they were migrant people that had been there and all of a sudden this, this message of hope of Jesus Christ began to spread all over the known world. And these little outposts would come and, and guys like Paul would, would go on these missionary journeys and they would begin to establish churches. But what happened when they moved on? Well, someone else would begin to lead those churches. Someone else would begin to be responsible for the teaching and the nurturing of, of that community of faith. Those people didn't have time to stop for three years and head off to Bible colleges that didn't even exist. They knew what they knew because of what they were taught by those who taught them. And you've got this eclectic mix of Jews who had discovered faith and Gentiles, non-Jews, who had come from a whole different range of cultures and beliefs and religions, and suddenly they discover Jesus, and you've got this melting pot, this group of completely different people meeting together around a common purpose, to explore what kingdom living looked like, to understand the message of hope of Jesus Christ. I mean, what do you do when 20 years after the death of Jesus, you begin asking questions. Well, was Jesus fully God and fully human? How, how do you work that out theologically when it's only just happened? What is the Holy Spirit and the, the role of that? What, does, does communion literally become blood and flesh when we eat it? That might seem weird to us, but early Christians, a lot of them were called cannibals because of their belief that when they ate the communion, it literally turned into the blood of Jesus. It literally turned into his body. 
How do you work through those kind of things when you haven't got the answers? And they began processing and, and, and all these different kind of beliefs came in and it became really important to ask questions and journey and answer questions. They didn't have the New Testament packaged up nicely like we do in, in a nice Bible that you pop down to the Kurong and you can get however you like. Whatever colour you want it in, you can get it in. If they were lucky, they had a letter that Paul had written them that scribes had rewritten and, and passed and, and begun to collate so that, that they could read all of Paul's letters and begin to get a bit of insight but he didn't even begin writing letters until 50 AD. It's 20 years after the death of Jesus Christ. Paul suddenly begins to write letters to these churches because he wants to begin to help them. The first of the Gospels, the book of Mark, wasn't even written until 70 AD. 40 years after Jesus had died before what we take for granted every single week. First began to be circulated. So it's no wonder that there were these different ideas and thinking and questions and things that came into the church and it was right to ask questions. It was a game changer in the early days in, in 1517 when Martin Luther, in rejection of some of the teachings of the Catholic Church around buying your salvation, indulgences, paying for, for your, your family to, that had died not believing in Jesus to make it to heaven. There was all these awful things taking place at the time and he stands there and he, he nails his thesis up on the, the wall of the, the, the church. Now, I don't think we live in an age where the church is dealing with a level of heresy like it was back in the early days. That there are shocking practices like buying of salvation. And... But we live in an age where people are questioning everything. I'm happy for people to question. I'm happy for people to have different viewpoints. But I'm more happy when you take those questions and you do the research for yourself. I would love nothing more than when I speak a concept on a Sunday morning here that perhaps you haven't thought of before, that you actually did something with that rather than your entire expression of learning about the things of the kingdom come from me. Now, for some of you, I have no doubt that the depth of your understanding about the things of Jesus Christ happen in church and at youth and things like that, but I think there needs to be more. I'm one voice, and it's not always the right voice. I realise I'm in a privileged position. I realise that I can influence and shape your theology and your faith and I do not take that lightly. I'm also in a position where I get asked a lot of questions and some of those questions are really hard. I get asked about same-sex marriage. I get asked about abortion and suicide. I get asked about divorce. I get asked about why God allows pain and suffering. I get asked why the church just wants our money. I get asked, what does God think about relationships breaking up? I get asked if sin really matters, if, if it's okay just to ignore the Bible because Jesus will forgive us anyway. The early church didn't have access to the, the wealth of information that we do today.
Do I have all the answers? Well, no, I don't. Be honest this morning, I don't have all the answers. But perhaps I have some of the answers. You know what I've discovered and why I'm talking about this today? Many people have questions. Many people ask why. Maybe you're you're visiting with us today and you don't have a faith background. Maybe this church thing is fairly new to you. Let me talk to you for a minute today. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to want to find out more. We don't have all the answers. And part of the issue of being a follower of Jesus is it takes a degree of faith. That doesn't mean we walk into church and check our brains out at the door and we just blindly accept everything that's said. That's not what faith is at all. It means that sometimes some things won't make sense or we don't have all the answers, but we're okay with that. It's not knowledge that leads to discovering a loving God, but an encounter with Him. That's why we worship. That's why we pray. Because we believe that you can encounter God in a very real way. And sometimes when we do that, the questions that we might have don't seem quite so significant. So I'm going to start series, as I said, why? And I wrote a whole list of questions I put uh, this question out on Facebook and, uh, and some of you will have seen some of the responses on that because I know you follow me and you religiously read everything that I post and, and it's like the highlight of your day, the pastor's posted something again. And I got a bunch of responses and a bunch of direct messages because some people didn't want their questions out in public and, and I have the privilege of knowing the backstory of many of those people who ask questions and for you it's just names, you don't know whether they're Christians or not Christians and and they ask some doozy questions. And I don't know how I can answer all of that. To be honest with you this morning, I've been labouring over this message all weekend because I had some questions in here that I wanted to address today that were really hard and controversial perhaps. And I just felt really, really uneasy about that yesterday. And I removed a couple of them. And if I'm feeling braver, maybe next week I'll, I'll, I'll hit some really hard questions. But I want to start soft today. Is that okay? Walk us up to it a little bit. And it's a question, this, this really is a, a soft question. But it's a question that I get asked a lot. Why is our Bible so hard to understand? It's a, as I said, it's a, it's, it's a soft question, but it's a big issue. And if you're being honest today, and given that we're in church, let's go with that. How many people have found the Bible hard to understand? You can put your hand up. This, this is not a test that you can fail. I found it hard to understand. I went to Bible college. I, I, I did courses in theology and, 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 and spent long time trying to get my head around all of this and I've still got a bunch of questions. There's still a bunch of things that, that don't always make sense to me. And you're not alone. You know that the Bible is a compilation of books written by about 40 authors from totally different walks of life, totally different regions, and spanning across 1,500 years. Five of those who wrote books were priests, four were kings, 13 were musicians. Let's hear it for the musicians. Moses, 
gets credit for the most words in the Bible. He wrote the first five books and one psalm. He's responsible for about 20% of the words in the Bible. Paul, New Testament, contributed the most individual works. The smallest contributor was a man by the name of He-Man, master of the universe. He wrote one psalm that had 233 words in it. That's my kind of book. He's in the Bible. He-Man, I love that. 233 words. It was written in Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament and and the Greek that it was written in the New Testament wasn't formal Greek, it was conversational Greek, which was the common language of the day and what was spoken by the masses. And the New Testament church, when they were using Old Testament scriptures that they had gathered, the books of Moses and things like that, they read it in Greek. It was written in Greek, that's the translation they used, that was their language, it's called the Septuagint, and that's what they used as their scripture. Today, we read English translations, most of us in here that, that speak English as a first language. Thanks to the Reformation and the development of the printing press, we have access to the written word of God. King James in the 1600s produced a version of the, the Bible because there was a lot of controversy and a lot of things going on at the time, and they wanted an official version of the Bible. And if you grew up in England, the, the, the King James version, the authorised version, is what was produced then. Many people believe it's the only version that we should be reading today, even though it doesn't feel like it was actually written in English. If you read it, very old language. But interestingly enough, King James decreed this, this thing when he, he wanted the translation written. He said it should be spoken in contemporary language using common and recognisable terms makes it tough for arguing to hold on to the Old English when it was designed to be used as a modern translation. In fact, for those nerdy ones around you, among you here, and I know there's a few, along with Shakespeare, the Bible shaped English and actually came up with new words and sayings that had not previously existed. Things that are common today, especially in the church world, obviously. An eye for an eye, bottomless pit, two-edged sword, it's going to turn the world upside down. Those were phrases that had never existed till the Bible developed them. Have you ever wondered why there are so many different translations? While well, you walk into Kurong and there's row after row after row and you don't know where, which, which of the letters you should be gathering, the NIV, the NLT, the AMP, they're just letters, all these acronyms there. Which acronym should you choose? Well, part of it is because Many people are attempting to do what King James actually set out to do in the 1600s, write a modern translation with language and English that we understand as, as learning has developed, as the English language has moved on, as, as concepts and, and theology begins to broaden and depth and deepen, that the, the, there is a room and a place for those sorts of things to take place. Another reason the Bible can be hard to understand and we can feel like we've got no hope is because of preachers like me. Now, I, I need to be careful with doing something that I do do at times because it, it can make us feel like we don't understand our Bible and we've got no hope. And that's what, when I, when I open my Bible and I begin to share on a passage and I said, now this English word actually means this in the Greek. You've heard me do that, right? And, and what that can communicate, not intentionally, is 
you can't understand your English translation. doesn't matter what you read, you're not going to understand it anyway. So I'm a little bit careful about that. I don't do it a whole lot. But, but the reason that I do that, so that you can understand why I pull that thing out, it's not that the English is wrong. It's just that English isn't always the best language to translate into because it hasn't got the rich depth of meaning and understanding that some other languages have, particular Greek and Hebrew. And so the, the English language word is right, but there's often a depth and layers to it. It's like an onion. There's these other layers that, that can bring some different insights. It's not that you, you can't trust your English translation and the English words. It's just sometimes there's a richness. So let me encourage you when you're reading your Bible, when you're trying to understand what it is that it says, if you don't understand a verse, whack it into Google. Start, there's so many tools available to study your Bible. When I was at Bible college, we paid hundreds and hundreds of dollars for Bible study software that I could put a word in and it would give me the meaning and all the other places that it shows up in the Bible and all the other ways it could be used. We paid hundreds of dollars for that. Now Google gives it to you for free. Brilliant. What a great age we live in where information is so readily available. I'm not going to re-preach a series that I did last year or maybe even earlier this year on understanding our Bibles, but I want to make it as simple as I can for some of you in a few sentences. The Old Testament is the story of God and his people. God worked through individuals on behalf of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. God dealt with individual leaders such as Abraham and Moses and the kings and the prophets. And then the New Testament The game has changed. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus came not just for the Jews, but for every single one of us. His death and his resurrection opened the door for all. Jesus trained a group of people who would go forth and establish a church and teach others who this Jesus was and how to live as Jesus lived. In the New Testament is the story of the kingdom of God being established and how we can be part of it. The message is actually quite simple, but it's not an easy message. God wants our whole lives. He wants us to live lives centred on Him. As I've preached here many times, Acts tells us it's in Him we live, we move, we have our being. So is the Bible hard to understand? Well, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. If you're just starting out, Read the New Testament. Start with the Gospels. Start with the book of Mark or the book of Luke. And as for why we need to look at our scriptures, as for why it's important for Christians to read their Bible and begin to get their head around some things, I'm going to let the Bible speak for itself on this one. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, And training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The point of Scripture is to teach us, to train us, rebuke, correct us, get some stuff in our life sorted out. When we read the Scriptures and we realize that the way we've been living doesn't line up with the model that Jesus Christ teaches us or what the Bible lays out, when we look at some of our character flaws and the sins and the things that we keep coming around and we realize, Hold on, I've been doing this, but Scripture's showing me a different model, and we begin to change. That's what 
the Bible's for. And it's about preparing us for good works. It's never, ever been about you only. It's always been about other people. The message of the cross has always been about other people. God prepares us. He uses you and trains you and equips you through his word. He rebukes you, corrects you. Why? So that you can go and do good works. You can take this message of hope that you've received to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. And I grew up, my my pastor used to say that, Dave, you're the only Bible some people are ever going to read. Only way they're ever going to See who Jesus is is through my life. Maybe the reason they find it so hard to understand is that I haven't got everything sorted out. I feel the weight of that at times upon my shoulders. But you know what? When I look at that and realise I have faith because of those that have gone before me. Those that I've seen live out this message of hope that have inspired me to be better, to make change, to do something different. All right, let's hit a different question this morning. This one's a little bit tougher. Why do bad things happen to good people? Anyone in this room ever wondered that? A few people, a few nods. Well, I might answer that another time. <laughs> when I've got a good answer. It's a tough question. It's a really hard question because we could also ask the exact opposite of that. Why do good things happen to bad people? Because I don't like seeing bad people have good things happen to them as much as I don't like seeing good people have bad things happen to them. Did I say those things around the right way? It can get a little bit confusing. It's a really hard question to answer if I'm being honest this morning and it's harder still by one factor. The people who most often ask this question, the people who most often want and need this question answered, it's because they have personally experienced pain, loss and suffering, sometimes quite profoundly. And there's no response that I can give this morning that will take that pain away. And intellectual reasoning will not remove a heart full of suffering. I wish it was true. I wish I could preach your pain away. I'd have a church in the millions if I could preach your pain away. I can't do that. There's only one person that can minister to your heart of pain, and he's not a person. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the creator of the universe. Sometimes it's said that how could a God who is all-powerful, all-good, and all-knowing allow things to happen? So if bad things happen, even though God's supposed to be this, then he can't be those things at all or he just doesn't care about us. So can we acknowledge this morning for a moment that my response today is an intellectual response? My words don't have the power to change you, to make you feel better. But if you'll bear with me sharing my perspective for a few minutes, I will give you what I do have. I will pray for you. I will ask the God of creation of eternity, the God of love and peace to meet you right where you're at today. In this moment, he can meet you and he can do what I can't do. My theology of suffering presupposes a few things and to an atheist this would be wholly unsatisfactory. 
because my response centres on God. See, God created all things, but he allowed corruption of his plan to take place because that ensured that we have free will. If there was not a rule that could be broken, then we would have had no choice but to accept him instead of having the freedom to reject him. And God wanted you and I to live with freedom. The consequence of that freedom and the ultimate rejection of God is that brokenness and corruption entered the world. Suffering became a part of the human experience. Death entered the world. Life would be finite and none of us would escape alive. The question of why do bad things happen to good people is a touch unfair if we consider that bad things happen to all people, just like good things happen to all people. Life happens to people often indiscriminately. And none of it makes much much sense until we read the words of John 10.10. The enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and life to the fullest. There's an enemy that wants nothing more than to destroy you, to remove your peace and your love and your hope and your faith. He wants to destroy everything and corrupt it all. And there's a God that loves you and sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for you because He wants you to have life to the fullest. Another translation says an abundant life. Life to the fullest doesn't look like many of us are experiencing. Many of us have pain and suffering and have experienced loss and tragedy. It doesn't seem like life to the fullest when I look at those situations and circumstances. I realise that Jesus came to begin the process of restoration, to establish the kingdom of God, to begin drawing people back to himself. Being a follower of the ways of Jesus doesn't excuse us from pain and suffering. I think Jesus went through a little bit. I think his disciples went through a little bit. If we're going to look to Jesus as our model, if we're going to look at all the good stuff, then we've got to realise that there was another side of it as well. He experienced pain and suffering and loss and tragedy. The Bible says that Jesus wept when his good friend Lazarus died. Jesus knew pain. 1 of the core messages that I speak here in church a lot is that God is interested in our transformation. We talk about the two parts of the cross, the transaction, the upright, where God gets our crap and we get his blessing, where, where it's about the forgiveness of our sin, the, the death of, on, of Jesus Christ upon that cross. That's the transaction that takes place, new for old. But there's another part of the cross and the work of the cross So the upright, another language we could use for that is the way of the cross. Sorry, the work of the cross. And then there's the other one, the transformation part, the way of the cross, where Jesus Christ doesn't want you to be the same in 10 years' time as you are right now, struggling with the same things, going through the same things always. He's about our transformation, this journey of discovering what it is to be a kingdom person living in the kingdom of God. We talk about transformation here all the time. Hopefully in time as we we do this Christian journey, we're becoming more like Jesus Christ. So we have experiences, good and bad. And part of God's goal is to change us so that our experiences 
of those circumstances is better. It's a profound shift of thinking. Maybe our experiences of the circumstances that we're enduring is better. Maybe there's something that takes place in us when we experience those things that produces a good outcome, even though there's pain, even though there's suffering, even though life is unfair. You know, many surveys have been conducted over the years investigating what are factors for personal growth, for spiritual growth. And the number one response time and time and time again is pain and suffering. How awful is it that the catalyst to bring the most spiritual growth in your life is pain and suffering? If only it was the other way around. If only it was all the good things made us more spiritual, more like Christ, but it's not. It's the experience of the shadow side of life. There's not a person in this room that hasn't been touched by loss. There's not a person in this room that hasn't experienced pain and suffering of some form, some at a way different level. Let me encourage you this morning. There is another side. We can come out the other end of that better, healthier, stronger, more like Christ. It doesn't make the journey easier. When I look back over the things that I've had to experience in my life and, and my loss, and I'm not re-preaching my testimony this morning, I say I wouldn't wish my life on my worst enemy, but I wouldn't change it for anything because it's made me who I am today. It's shaped me, I think, for the better. C.S. Lewis says, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a a deaf world. What we experience on earth must be viewed in light of eternity. This is not all there is. This is not the whole story. It's the beginning of an eternal story of God restoring all things, of an eternity living life the way that he intended it to happen. And things will happen, not because God sat down and said, right, that person there, they can have a car accident, but because accidents happen in the world that God has created. And our response as followers of Jesus should be responses of faith and perseverance. Sometimes when our world falls apart, it's not the end of the story. There was a software engineer who developed an app, many of you in this room, many of the younger ones in this room, will have used called WhatsApp. It's an app for communicating via messaging with people all over the world. In 2009, the founder of that app applied for a job at Facebook and Twitter, and they knocked him back. Four years after that, Facebook paid $19 billion to develop the app that he created after getting rejected by them. I'd say that's a good upgrade. J.K. Rowling's first Harry Potter book was rejected by 21 publishers. Walt Disney was fired from a newspaper for lacking creativity. In 1996, the Disney company would buy the ABC, which was the owner of the paper that fired him. And the second response that we should have is a response of prayer. We pray to a God who can and does intervene to do something. Can I ask the communion helpers to come and begin to hand communion out? We're going to do it in this part of the service this morning as part of what I want to do today. If in the distraction of them doing that, you can do your best to listen to me as I land this this morning. None of us know why prayer works. 
sometimes and not other times. And that's the faith piece. But you know what? Even if God answers none of my prayers, I'm going to keep praying. Because logic tells me that God will never answer a prayer that I never prayed. And just maybe, just maybe today, He will answer the prayers that I do pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there was anything in this message that you would like to talk further about, please go to our website on www.cofcpenrith.org www.cofcpenrith.org